When it comes to stories in the Old Testament, this is probably one of the ones that people know from the book of Exodus. You have the plagues, obviously. People know about the plagues, sometimes about the manna and the quail. And then this is probably the other best-known incident in the book of Exodus from the, the travels of the people of Israel. But usually, we only focus on part of the story. We focus on the fact that the Israelites committed idolatry. And perhaps with good reason, Paul mentions that specifically in 1 Corinthians 10 and says we ought to learn a lesson from it. But if we only focus on the idolatry and we don't look at the larger context of chapters 33 and 34 with regard to Moses interceding for the people and God's covenant faithfulness despite the people's wickedness, God renewing the covenant, then we do miss, I think, the main point of this passage as it stands in the book of Exodus. So what's the whole picture? Stubborn idolatry provokes God's wrath and requires intercession to renew fellowship with your unchanging God. And I thought long and hard about how to make that shorter, couldn't make that shorter. But I think that sums up what's going on in the passage. So let's start with this first idea. Stubborn idolatry provokes God's wrath. What's the first aspect of this stubborn idolatry? The first aspect of it is that unbelief produces idolatry. And this has several symptoms. Impatience is a symptom of unbelief. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This is repeated again in verse 23. Psalm 106.13 says it this way, They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. We perhaps see a preview of this in Esau's haste to get food for himself and selling his birthright. This is another example of impatience being linked with unbelief. Why do I say that impatience is a symptom of unbelief? Well, Moses had gone up on the mountain in chapter 24. We looked at that a few weeks back. Chapter 24, verse 18, Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And by the end of a little over a month, they said, we don't know what happened to him. Forget about him. Let's move on to the next thing. Aaron, why don't you be our leader? Make us an idol that we can worship God through, and let's move on. They wait four generations to be delivered from the land of Egypt, but they can't wait 40 days for Moses to come down off the mountain. Impatience is a sign of unbelief. Stubbornness is also a symptom of unbelief. How does God describe them in chapter 32, verse 9? I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. And then Exodus 33, verses 3 and 5. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. Repeat it again in verse 5, and then in the passage that Jim just read for us, uh, verse 9 of chapter 34. Let the Lord go along, even though the people are so obstinate. Sometimes we view stubbornness as a good character quality. And when it's persistence, yes. But when it's stubbornness, that's a sign of unbelief. What is the difference between stubbornness and persistence? Persistence is turning to God in prayer faithfully and regularly when He has not immediately answered our prayer. Stubbornness is saying, I'm going to go my own way, God, even though you've said this is the way I'm supposed to go. So impatience and stubbornness are linked together as being these symptoms of unbelief. And then obviously the big one, idolatry is a symptom of unbelief. Idolatry is the outward expression of an unbelieving heart. You have what's going on inside, that's unbelief. You have what goes on outside, idolatry, the tangible expression of unbelief. What does this look like? Chapter 32, verses 4 through 6. Aaron takes the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And all the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. What was their sin? Specifically, their sin was two things. Worshiping the right God in the wrong way and trying to rush God's plan when He had not yet come to dwell among them in the tabernacle. And secondly, abandoning themselves to complete chaos in their self-imposed worship approach. This is all the more severe given what God had already said. Exodus 6 and verse 7. The Lord said, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And God had just said in chapter 29, which Moses was about to come down from the mountain and give to the people, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. But they didn't wait for that word from the Lord in light of the earlier word from the Lord that He had given them. Instead, they went their own way. Why is idolatry a big deal? Revelation 22.15 Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Idolatry is linked to unbelief because it excludes you from God's presence in eternity. We ought to watch for symptoms of idolatry in our own worship. Do we worship God according to our own imaginations? A person who calls himself J. Mai at the Democratic National Convention this week said, God looks like black trans women to me. So what does God look like? God looks like whatever I imagine God to be. I can redefine God. I can say about God whatever I want. I'm not just picking on the DNC. I think Republicans have at times committed idolatry in greed because, we, as we've seen in previous chapters, the New Testament leaks greed with idolatry. So I'm not just picking on one political party, but this is a very clear and specific example of someone who is rejecting what God has said about himself to redefine and reimagine God according to his own imagination. But we can do this too, right? C.S. Lewis said this in the Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is a fictional account of how C.S. Lewis imagined a more skilled demon might train a less skilled demon in the art of leading people astray from God. And in this fictional account, he makes some pointed observations. Speaking in terms of the one training the other, Lewis says this, But even if he defeats your first attempt at misdirection, we have a subtler weapon. The humans do not start from that direct perception of him which we unhappily cannot avoid. They have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare which makes the background of permanent pain to our lives as demons. If you look into your patient's mind when he is praying, you will not find that. If you examine the object to which he is attending, you will find that it is a composite object containing many quite ridiculous ingredients. There will be images derived from pictures of the enemy, from the perspective of a demon, Jesus would be an enemy, as he appeared during the discreditable, discreditable episode known as the Incarnation. There will be vaguer, perhaps quite savage and puerile images associated with the other two persons. There will even be something of his own reverence and of bodily sensations accompanying it, objectified and attributed to the object revered. I have known cases where what the patient, the human, called his God was actually located up and to the left in a corner of the bedroom ceiling or inside his own head or in a crucifix or picture on the wall. But whatever the nature of the composite object, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the person who has made him. You may even encourage him to attach great importance to the correction and improvement of his composite object and to keeping it steadily before his imagination during the whole prayer. For if he ever comes to make the distinction, if he ever consciously directs his prayers, not to what I think thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be, our situation is for the moment desperate. Once all his thoughts and images have been flung aside, or if retained, retained with a full recognition of their merely subjective nature... And the man trusts himself to the completely real, external, invisible presence there with him in the room and never knowable by him as he is known by it. Why then it is that the incalculable may occur. 
In avoiding this situation, this real nakedness of the soul in prayer, you will be helped by the fact that humans themselves do not desire it as much as they suppose. There's such a thing as getting more than what they bargained for. Is your God a mere composite of your own imaginations, or is he the God as revealed in Scripture? If he is a composite of your imaginations, if you redefine God as someone did this week, and we all have done at various points in time, according to our own imaginations, this is blasphemy and this is idolatry and we need to repent of it. But the symptom that goes alongside it is chaos. And this was the issue with the Israelites as they, perhaps a better word in verse 6, instead of rose up to play, would be something along the ideas of of frolicked or caroused before this idol and this altar that they have fashioned for themselves. There are those who see in this overtones of immorality, and certainly that's evident later in Israel's history. I think the simple fact of what's going on here is just a complete abandon, probably accompanied by drunkenness, certainly accompanied by not truths about what God had revealed himself about himself up to this point. Contrast this with the soberness that God laid before them in Exodus 18 and 19 and 20, coming before the mountain. If you come before the mountain, here are the boundaries. Prepare yourselves. Be ready. Take this seriously. And now before the mountain, they're carousing before an altar, abandoning themselves to whatever they want to do. This chaos is a symptom of improper worship before God and in itself is also wickedness and idolatry. Unless we think that this is merely an Old Testament concern, look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. Let all things be done decently and in order. Right? God is not honored when people are rolling around in the aisles or abandoning themselves to wild fits of laughter or whatever else. God is not honored when we come before Him with lack of attention and lack of preparation in our hearts. And if we find those symptoms in our own worship, as much as we ought to be concerned about reimagining God according to our own ideas, we ought to also be very concerned about a chaotic approach to the worship of God that fails to approach Him with reverence that He deserves and the seriousness that we see even in chapter 34 when he says, don't even let the animals graze in front of the mountain, because going back to chapter 18, they must die if they touch it. The Israelites were impatient. They were stubborn. They were committed idolatry. What about you and I? Do we see impatience or stubbornness as no big deal, particularly when it leads us to disobedience of God? Do we live in idolatry after some fashion, whether it be reimagining God to be a God that we like better, or whether it be a chaotic approach to worship? What's God's response to these sorts of things? God hates idolatry. First of all, God will punish unrepentant idolaters. Look at verse 10. It says to Moses, Let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Exodus 32, verse 19. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. People argue about whether Moses should have done this. We know later on he expresses anger that excludes him from going into the promised land. But right here and right now, I think Moses is the visible representation of God's anger toward the sin of the people. And the shattering of the stone tablets is a sign that the Israelites have broken their covenant with God. What's Moses' further response in verse 20? He took the calf which they had made and burned it and ground it to powder and scattered it over the water and made the Israelites to drink it. And this has often puzzled me. Why would he do this? Well, if you drink the remnants of your God and it passes through you, it's defiled. You can't worship it anymore. I think that's what's going on here. He's saying, that was wrong. You're done with it. You'll never worship it again because it's defiled and you can't worship it. 
It doesn't stop there. Moses then turns and confronts his brother. What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Moses holds his brother accountable despite the fact that his brother was acting as leader in his stead along with her and the other uh, elders who had been appointed in chapter 18. Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. I think we ought to see echoes of what happens in Genesis 3 here, right? Adam, what'd you do? Eve. Eve, what'd you do? The serpent. What does God do? God holds every single one of them accountable for the sin that they commit. Moses is holding Aaron accountable for his failure in leadership of the people and participating in leading them to idolatry. Look at the callousness of Aaron's words in verse 24. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. That's not what actually happened. What actually happened? Verse 4. He took it. He fashioned it. He made it look nice. He carved it into an image that they, could re- that they could recognize and that was beautiful after its fashion. He had a willing hand in this. And so right here, he is giving up his res- abandoning his responsibility and lying about what he actually did. What's Moses' further response? When Moses saw the people were out of control... Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. The people's idol is defiled. Moses confronts his brother Aaron. 3,000 Israelites die for their idolatry. And then Moses has to go plead with them before the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 35. The Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. God hates idolatry and God will punish unrepentant idolaters. Furthermore, God is jealous for the worship of His people. Chapter 34, verse 14. You shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And much as Moses expressed, I think, righteous anger in casting down the tablets and in the actions which follow in chapter 32, Jesus expressed that same sort of righteous anger when people had abandoned the proper worship of God. In Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Coming before God can be defiled by greed and corruption. Coming before God can be defiled by idolatry. In both cases, the right response is a righteous anger that mirrors the anger of God. Again, I ask you, if we commit idolatry after this fashion, not that we make ourselves a calf, because that's not the sort of things we tend to worship, but if we commit idolatry... Do we think that God's going to turn a blind eye to it and doesn't care about it? I think this passage makes it very clear that God is concerned about it and God will hold people accountable and God is jealous for His people to worship Him. Stubborn idolatry provokes God's wrath, but God's wrath can be turned aside. And this leads us to the second idea from this passage. Stubborn idolatry requires intercession. But to be an intercessor is not an easy job. Intercessors are tested. Will you take responsibility for others? Notice what God does here in chapter 32 and verse 7. Right after the description of the people's sin, He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now we recognize... God's the one who ultimately made that happen, right? Why then does God emphasize your people whom you brought up? He's testing Moses to see if he's going to take responsibility for this people and have a proper role as their leader as God has appointed him to be. A further test, not just will you take responsibility for others, but will you love your enemies and do good to those who hate you? 
to put the New Testament language alongside the Old Testament passage. 32 verse 10, I didn't read the last phrase. He said that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. God's testing Moses. This people's been difficult. They've sinned. I have just caused to wipe them out and I can make a new nation of you and your descendants. Would God's promises have failed if God had done that? I would argue at some level, no. Because God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to Israel, that their descendants would be the heirs of the promised land. Now, there are those who would say if the 12 tribes were not there, then God had not fulfilled his promises. And Moses seems to express something of that here in chapter 32. Notice God, Moses' appeal to God. Moses entreated the Lord, verse 11, chapter 32, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? He says, God, why are you angry with them? He knows the answer to this, but he is bringing these things before God. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. So he says, God, what effect will this have on your name given what's already taken place up to this point? Verse 13, Remember your promises. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. He continues in chapter 32, verse 31 and 32. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin... And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. This parallels what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Let that sink in for a minute. Would you be willing, as Moses and Paul were, to say, if it were possible, I would give up my spot in God's presence so that these people might be with God? Now think about the fact that Jesus actually bore God's curse. Moses couldn't do it, Paul couldn't do it, but Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And this is linked with his role as the great intercessor in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Moses and Paul, imperfect pictures. Jesus is the perfect intercessor who takes responsibility for his people that God has given to him and who loves his neighbor as himself and gives his very life to secure their salvation. Not only do intercessors face God's testing in their role, but they also have the privilege to see God. And I started to put something further after that, but we're going to see it's simply the privilege to see God, both in His person and in His actions. First of all, that God's wrath can be turned aside, though judgment still falls on those who don't repent. Look at verse 14, Exodus 32, verse 14. So the Lord changed His mind about the harm which He said He would do to his people. Why do I say that wrath would still fall? Chapter 32, verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Romans 5, 9 says this, much more than having been justified by his, Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. What happened here? There are those like a man named Greg Boyd and others who have uh, gone the same direction as him, who would say, you know, the easy answer for why it says God turned away is God didn't know what was going to happen. So, of course, he could change his mind. 
Because it's like you, you say you're going to go to the park and then it rains, you don't go to the park. You didn't know it was going to rain. God's just like you guys. This is heresy. God did not turn aside from the anger which he purposed to do toward the people of Israel because he had no idea what Moses was going to say next and because they had no idea what he was going to do next. Now, we have to recognize we cannot overreact to what these people have said, which is heresy, and come over here and say, no need to pray, guys. God's already said what's going to happen, and it's going to happen, and there is nothing that you can do about it. Why? Because the Bible says pray, and the Bible says God responds to prayer, and how that fits precisely with God's sovereignty is in some degree a mystery, but that doesn't make it less true. We cannot go to the error, to the heresy of saying, God didn't know what was going to happen, God couldn't do anything about it. Or to the error of saying, well, you don't need to pray, because if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's fatalism, that's not Christianity that trusts in God and His sovereignty. Moses interceded and God responded and intervened. That's what the passage says. So you might find it ironic that we say, great is thy faithfulness, where it says there's no shadow of turning with you, with speaking of God. So how do we fit those ideas together? There's no shadow of turning with you. The New Testament, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, God turned away from his wrath. The best explanation that I've come across is this. When, whenever God goes to judge people for their sin there is extended a conditional offer of repentance. What do I mean by that? I mean, there's this implied if. If you do not repent, this is absolutely what's going to happen. Moses, if you do not intercede, here's what's going to take place. And I think this is the best explanation because it upholds the sovereignty, the goodness, and the power of God and recognizes what's actually taking place. Because God knows what's going to happen, because God is in control of all things, God knows that Moses is going to come and pray this prayer. God knows that the people are going to express some measure of repentance later in this section. And so just like when God sends Jonah to Nineveh, repent 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, God doesn't destroy Nineveh. Why? The people repent. We don't have to redefine God. We don't have to go to heretical opinions. We can simply say what the text says, which is, God says judgment is coming, but like it says so many other places in the Bible, if you repent, God will delay or turn aside his judgment. God's judgment still fell on Assyria. Assyria was destroyed because of their cruelty toward the nation of Israel, but it was not in Jonah's day. God's judgment fell on the Israelites for their idolatry, but it was not in Moses' day. By way of application, God's judgment will fall on our nation, not because we are the Israelites, but because we are breaking every law that God has ever established if there is not repentance. And so I'm hesitant about using a passage where it says, if my people called by my name repent, if we understand it in this sense, because we are God's people, because the people of America are, God, are not God's people, never have been. God didn't call us to be our, his special people like he did call Israel. But the principle holds true, which is this, when people repent, God turns aside his wrath. But what does that look like for us in an election year? It looks like you and I ought not to believe everything that's being said to us. Because there are people in both political parties, all of the various ones that are out there, who are saying things simply because they want you to vote for them. And not because they actually believe them. And if you and I get suckered into falling for their schemes and their scams, 
then we are going to end up in a position of exalting immorality and idolatry and all sorts of other things because somebody says, believers for Biden, or because somebody says, President Trump loves Christians. I hope and I pray to God that both of them actually believe in God. but I've seen enough people come and sell people a lie to not be very confident that either of them necessarily are. Don't put your hope in political candidates whose parties as their stated goals promote to a greater or lesser extent things that the Bible says are wrong and we can argue which one does it more but the reality is sinful people who don't know God, who lead political parties, are going to have that sinfulness spill over into the goals for their party. Right? Don't put your hope in a presidential candidate, in a senator, in a mayor, in a city council member. Put your hope in Jesus. He's the intercessor. He's the one who can turn aside God's wrath. He's the one who can bring revival and true change to people. That doesn't mean we should abandon the political process. That doesn't mean that we should avoid discussing moral issues. It is wrong for someone to say, God is how I imagine him to be. And for everybody to say, yay, that's amazing! It is wrong for somebody to say it doesn't matter how we treat people who come into this country. And yes, I realize there's things about border sovereignty. I, I get that. But God laid out a lot of things toward the nation of Israel and how they were supposed to treat strangers and foreigners among them that I think we would do well to go back and read through the Old Testament and see what sort of pattern and principle that should lay out for the way that we would treat people. From a legal standpoint, the person that you encounter at the grocery store may not be here in the right way. That doesn't mean you have no responsibility to treat them as a fellow human being or share the gospel with them. For that matter, the person who's reimagined God and their own gender and all these sorts of things according to their own imagination is still a human being and needs to be treated as such while pointing them to Jesus and their need to repent. So my goal is not to this morning say, here's who you should vote for. My goal is to say, you are not trusting anybody in politics. It's not about Trump. It's not about Biden. It's not about list off whatever political candidate. It's about Jesus, and he's the only king who's going to rule righteously. So, according to your conscience, vote to uphold Jesus' goals, not the goals of a political party. Where does that put you? In a difficult spot. And you're going to have to wrestle through that. But Jesus is the answer for the wrath of God, not anyone or anything else. Intercessors have the privilege to see God. God's wrath can be turned aside. God's power can be revealed. How was God's power revealed? Look at the middle of chapter 33. Moses used to take the tent, verse 7, and push it outside the camp at a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, a son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from.
from the tent. But we continue through the chapter, and here at the end of chapter 33, the intercession continues and is linked with Moses seeing God. Moses continues to plead with God. It says earlier in chapter 32, God's wrath was turned aside, but now Moses is pleading with God, don't just not destroy us, return and go with us. Listen to what he says, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses is going to do the same thing that Abraham did when he was pleading for his nephew Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, interceding for those to whom he owed no allegiance because Lot had showed no faithfulness to him and the people of Sodom were wicked. But just like them, Moses pleads for the people of Israel. Verse 15, Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people that were on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Moses is asking for a sign, but not an unbelief, as confirmation of God's promise, because he knows that God can do it. Verse 18, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. You shall stand there on the rock and it will come about when my glory is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses has the opportunity to see God. God's wrath is turned aside. God's glory is revealed. The satisfaction of God's wrath by punishment, the intercession of the people by Moses' intervention, lays the groundwork so that stubborn idolatry can be dealt with, thirdly, to renew fellowship with your unchanging God. This is what we see in chapter 34. God forgives idolatry when it is dealt with by right worship and humble intercession. Notice in verse 3, there could not be any of the revelry and abandonment and carousing and complete lack of self-control that we saw in chapter 32. Instead, chapter 34, verse 3, no man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. God is reiterating the soberness that he laid out in chapter 19 of Exodus. Okay? So, a right worship before God. What is Moses' response? Look at verses 8 and 9. Moses made haste to bow low toward the ground and worship. He said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. There has to be repentance, there has to be intercession, there has to be right worship after there has been sin like what the people committed in chapter 32. There also has to be restoration of the relationship. Now this is a tricky thing, right? Because we talk about the idea of fellowship today in connection with our relationship with God. There is a sense in which fellowship cannot be broken because it's a simple fact that a relationship exists between us and God. There's also the practical reality that when you sin, things are not as they should be. So some people probably wrongly have said, when you sin, your fellowship with God is broken. What they're trying to say is this, which is true, something's wrong with your relationship with God. We can't say the fellowship is broken because that would be in a sense saying the relationship has ceased to exist, which it has not if we are part of God's family. It's not like a yo-yo, we're with God and we're not with God and we're with God and we're not with God. You either are or you aren't. And it's not like, it's like family, right? They're your family, whether you like it or not, and it doesn't go back and forth because of some problem between you and people in your family. The relationship still exists. 
But like in relationships, and particularly in the relationship of marriage, what is true? The relationship can be broken to such a degree that it is effectively and practically and on its surface ended, right? The Old Testament picture of this was divorce. God speaks of his relationship with Israel in marriage terms, and we're going to see that as we continue through chapter 34, because of the seriousness of the relationship and because of the fact that sinful choices damage that relationship, right? But here's the amazing thing. There are some marriages that are broken and that will not be restored in this life. There are some rifts in families that do not get fixed in this life But because God has never changed, God can restore his relationship with his people, even though his people have gone clear over here. In a human scenario, you can't restore that relationship because it requires the other person coming here, and you can't change someone's heart. But God can change someone's heart, and God himself never changed, and so God can restore his people to a right relationship with him. And here in this passage, he does so by renewing the covenant. Why does he do this? Verse 10, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among many of the, any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Think back to the plagues. Why did God send the plagues? So the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So that the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord. Why is God bringing his people out? So the nations of the earth would know that he is the Lord for his glory. God restores the relationship for his own glory. This is important because sometimes we get kind of proud in our dealing with sin. We feel like, We deal with our sin, and now we feel better about ourselves, and so that's really what it's all about. I ask God for forgiveness for my sin, and now the relationship is restored so that I can feel better about myself. That's not the point of it. The point of it is so that God will be glorified in your repentance and in the change He continues to work in your life. It's not about you. It's about God. God restores the relationship, secondly, on His own terms. And this is where we... We, we want wiggle room, right? We were here. We went over here and sinned. We want to come like halfway back. We'll leave our options open. We want to say, well, maybe I can go back to this. If this doesn't work out, we want to kind of straddle the fence. God receives you back and will restore you, but it's on his own terms. What are the terms he gave to the people of Israel? 34 verse 12. Make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Tear down their altars. Smash their sacred pillars. Cut down their ashram. You guys saw what Moses did to the idol? Do that to the people when you come into their land. That's not necessarily a call for us in the church to go knock down all the things that we think people around us are worshiping in idolatry. But it is a recognition that when there are idols that people around us worship, we're going to be sucked in and drawn to those idols too, right? I've talked to you about this before. You can worship all kinds of things. And the different hobbies and things that I've pursued in the last 10 years, people will worship the strangest things. People will worship acquiring a rare fish. People will worship their skill in woodworking. People will worship the toys that they play with. People will worship their jobs and their families and their achievements and pretty much anything you can conceive of, people will worship. And the practical reality is that when people around us worship things and when those things continue to be worshipped and we're around them long enough, we are drawn potentially to worship them too. So although I said our goal is not to go and smash the idols of everybody around us because they're not always tangible things in the same way they were in the Old Testament... Watch out for the fact that your heart's going to be drawn to commit idolatry along with them. God was very concerned about this for for his people. And I didn't have Jim read these verses because I wanted to end with verse 14, this idea of God being a jealous God. But listen to verses 15 through 17. 
Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And you might take, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. So what's going on here? God's putting this in marriage sort of terms. You are my people. You belong to me. We have made a covenant. If you abandon me, it's the same kind of abandonment as if a wife leaves her husband or a husband leaves his wife for another person. You are damaging, even destroying that relationship and expressing unfaithfulness, and it's wickedness. And the way that this was going to take place, God was a jealous God. Very important for us to recognize, intermarriage between the Israelites and the peoples around them was never a racial superiority kind of idea. There are people who have made it that, and that's wrong. The issue that was always at stake was this. Here were God's people. They were supposed to worship God. Here were people who were not God's people. They didn't worship God. When you take someone who worships God and someone who didn't worship God and you marry them, what's going to happen? It's going to be a tug of war, and this person is usually going to lose. God didn't want that to happen. By way of application, for all of you who are not yet married in this room, don't marry an unbeliever. You will not win that tug of war. Almost never. What's going to happen? You're going to say, let's go to church. They're going to say, which church? Or no, right? You're going to say, let's teach them about God. They're going to say, which God? Or no. It doesn't work for two people, one who genuinely loves God and one who doesn't love God or just has a very superficial profession of faith. It doesn't work just like God warned the Israelites about here. Expand that out to the way the church is supposed to look. It doesn't work for the church to be made up of people who are actual believers and who are just pretending to be believers. Now, I recognize because of the deceitfulness of sin and the fact that we can't know everything, all of those factors, that sometimes happens in churches. In fact, in most churches, there's at least one person who doesn't actually know God, right? I think we just recognize that. That's the whole point of the wheat and the tares and all those other examples that Jesus gives. But the goal should be that it's not that way. And I think this is one of the great blessings of the crises that are happening in our nation right now because, and there's been false reports going around online, so I get that, but there's also the practical reality that sooner or later, the government of California is going to crack down on John MacArthur, potentially, and Christians are going to have to make a decision, do I love God or do I love money? Do I love my job and my reputation with my neighbors or do I love God? And you and I may be called to make that same choice. And it's going to be a hard choice because my daughter's had cancer. It's expensive to treat that. There's potentially going to come a time where if I say what the Bible says, I'm going to get cut off from health care and all of those sorts of things. I think we just have to face that reality. And that would break my heart as a father to say, you need treatment and I can't get it for you. That's my struggle. I don't know what your struggle is. The thing that's going to be the sticking point for you of saying following God is more important than anything else. And I'm not necessarily calling what's going on across our country persecution in anything like the sense that it's happened in other countries or in history. But I think it is the beginning of, not necessarily the end, but at least a period of testing for the church that's going to say, do you really love God, or you've just been doing it because you think you should? And we're going to have to make that call. And I trust all of us will say, yes, God is more important, and we will not deny Christ. What happens at the end of this chapter? God works through imperfect Moses, and now through perfect Jesus, to give fellowship, bring himself glory, and anticipate the day when we see him in perfection as we are made perfect. Look at the end of this chapter. It's fascinating. It came about 
when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai. Let me me, uh, start in verse 27. The Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand as he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face, and he went in to speak with him. What do we see in the last part of this chapter? Moses is a forerunner of Jesus. There is a covenant. There's 40 days of testing in the wilderness. There's a transfiguration of appearance. Look at the parallels. Moses is not perfect. Jesus is. But Moses and his experience with God on the mountain points to what God is going to do perfectly through Jesus. So, what's our conclusion? Stubborn idolatry provokes God's wrath. If you are living in stubborn idolatry to a greater or lesser extent in your life, repent of it because God's wrath falls on those who are idolaters. And God will not tolerate it among His people. The Israelites are going to be sent into exile and gone through great difficulty because they never dealt with their problem of idolatry. So if we think, well, it has nothing to do with God's people. I've already trusted in Jesus, so it doesn't matter. That's false. God cares about it particularly with unbelievers, but he cares about it even in the hearts of his people. Stubborn idolatry requires intercession for it to be dealt with. Do you pray for the people around you? Do you pray for yourself to deal with your sin, but do you pray for the people around you that God would intervene in their sin, that they would repent? And stubborn idolatry, because of God's grace, can be dealt with such that the relationship can be restored. For us, It's not because God renews a covenant on a mountain through Moses. For us, it's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verse is for believers. So when we sin, we can be restored if we repent If we intercede to God for ourselves and for others, God will restore the relationship. Beware stubborn idolatry. Find hope in God's provision for dealing with it. Let's pray. Dear God, may the truths of this passage sink into our hearts. Amen.